This is Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Jake and Marin of Death in the Garden. Death in the Garden is a documentary project, a series of podcasts as well, sort of building up as part of the documentary process. It's genius. They've got these series of interviews that will be part of the documentary that you can tune into now. They're great. They're primarily focusing on regenerative agriculture and they go so much deeper as we detail in this conversation regenerative agriculture is a nexus point for ecological and cultural regeneration it's not just a farming method or a climate change solution it's so much more and i really enjoyed this conversation we went pretty deep about beliefs creativity realigning to what is true and good if you're enjoying Peak Earth and you'd like to contribute, came up with a few ideas. One is to leave a five-star review on the Spotify app or the Apple app. Those are really helpful for Peak Earth. And third idea could be to learn the art of graffiti, become a talented street artist, and make a peak earth promoting masterpiece somewhere highly visible in a large urban environment something like bank i would i would i would say become like banksy make an amazing piece of street art for for all to see so those those are three cool ideas um, that i felt called to share if you feel like doing that cool if not it, that's cool too. I appreciate you listening. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Jake and Marin. How's it going? Good. Good, good. good. How's it, how are you doing? Fantastic. Glad glad that we could we could connect and, and make this podcast. I've really been enjoying your podcast series, Death in the Garden. It's a it's like a, a series of, of interviews that you have for a documentary project that you're working on that I'm I'm really excited for about ecological and cultural regeneration. I'm sure so much more, a lot of fascinating topics and you made some time this morning to to connect and, and jam with me here on this, so I'm I'm stoked and, and grateful for that. And yeah, how's how's all that going? Where where are you at with with this this project that you're on? It's good, man. Actually, not too long ago, I uh, I went through the interview, the brief interview I did with you about your experience and foray into veganism. So that was uh, it's funny that we're talking to you now because I was just looking at your face not too long ago. <laughs> Uh, it's good that the film's coming, you know, going along well, we're, we're right now we're kind of wrapping up a long, uh, post-production stint where we kind of have been hibernating for this past winter, really chopping through the footage we have and seeing where we stand with the, what needs to be filmed and what topics we have just huge black holes in that need to be filled this summer. Yeah. I think we went into this project, not knowing actually how complicated it is to make a movie um especially the way that we're doing it is really strange because it's like we went into it with sort of a vague question about like okay can we go and see if maybe regenerative agriculture is going to like solve climate change and save the world and then when we went in and actually started exploring that it was like this whole universe opened up of like how little we understood the world and recognizing like you know from ecological literacy to geopolitical illiteracy like there's so many things that we just had no idea and there's so many things that are so interconnected so it's it's been interesting we've been doing this very unconventionally we've just been kind of making it up as we go um and you know it seems to be working out but we're really learning a lot as we go and it'll be a lot easier to make the next film we're hoping (laughs) awesome when when did you start filming like what was the first first thing you shot when was when was day one of this project that was so what happened was it was like right when the pandemic started. So like two days before uh, the, Trump announced like we are officially in a pandemic, Marin, Marin had, for like weeks, she'd been like, I've just always wanted to buy a van. I just really want to buy a van and like do the van. And I was like, yes, do it, do it, do it. She's like, my dad would be so mad. Nobody would agree with this. And I was like, do it, you know. And so she she bought the van, and then two days later, uh, the pandemic happens, and we both lost our jobs. And it was like, okay, apparently we live out of a van now, <laughs> you know. So we kind of full, you know, fully committed to um, 
living in the van and shortly after you know we really kind of conceptualized uh wanting to make a documentary about regenerative agriculture. So the first thing we filmed, it was that that summer of 2020 mm-hmm. um, in June. Yeah. And the first thing we did was we drove to California. We had gotten really lucky that um, we connected with the Savory Institute very early on. Like immediately. But immediately. And through a crazy, crazy happenstance, we connected with the Savory Institute. And for anybody who's listening, please go look them up because they're kind of like the head honchos of this movement. And um, they put us in touch with uh, a lot of their ranchers and farmers in California. So we immediately went to California. um, But before we got to any of these savory people, we actually, through other... No, it was, it was through, it was oh, like, yeah. like all of the people in this world are really connected to each other, even if they're not like part of the same yeah. organization. So the first people that we filmed with were actually the people who created Kiss the Ground. And yeah. so that was like the very first farm that we went to. But this was a year and a half before Kiss the Ground even came out. It was yeah. like some of the, yeah. So it was people at a place called So a Heart, uh, a farm kind of uh, close to, it was close to Ojai, California, I think. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And they're great. And so the first place we went was to see their operation in California. And I, I just, I look back on that and I remember I felt like they knew how uh, wet behind the ears we were. Yeah. They were like, oh God, these kids. We were so awkward. Stupid, crappy cameras <laughs> asking really basic questions. And so it was, it was super awkward. Not because like they weren't great. It's just like, you know, those interactions can't not be awkward when you're like with people who really know what they're doing. Yeah. And we didn't. And we're like, what is soil? How does soil work? Like we're just such basic questions, you know? Uh, and they were very gracious to give us some of their time. And that kind of really like highlighted like the first the first summer of making this film was us just being so naive and like inexperienced, but really having the passion to want to learn and to want to be better filmmakers that we just kind of pushed through that uncomfortable awkwardness of being the annoying young people in their shitty van asking annoying questions. Yeah. So it was like, it was going to be this like really low budget, like kind of just like bullshit film that would have, you know, we thought it was going to take three months and we were like, this is going to be awesome. And you know, we're not going to make any money off of it, but who cares? Um, We're going to show everyone how to save the world. And it was like really, really quickly into that though, that we realized like how reductionist our view going into it was and how much we had to learn as far as like you know what is actually the benefit of regenerative agriculture and it's not the ability to sequester carbon in the soil it's not these like you know uh reductionist sort of mechanical things that you impose on the landscape it's so much more than that and so much more based in like principle and values and so you know, very, very quickly, we realized like we didn't know what the right questions were to even ask because we were so fundamentally fixated on this idea of carbon. And luckily that like within like a month, we sort of were, you know, brought out of that. We, we had some conversations that were like, okay, like there's so much more happening here. And so we're not even going to really fixate on carbon anymore. Um, But yeah, so that was like, we spent the first month in California going around, bopping around to all these different farms. And it was really, really uh, like mind blowing and everything that everyone said, like I had no idea what anyone was saying. And it wasn't until like months and months later, we returned back to some of the conversations and I was like, oh my God, I understand now. But um, yeah, we, we did not know what we were doing (laughs) when we went into this. (laughs) Amazing. Well, huge. Huge kudos to you for, for diving in, having the courage to, to take that plunge and, and pull that trigger and, and engage with, with the project where you had, had no idea. And So Heart Farms and Kiss the Ground, the documentary, is that run by Ryland Engelhard, who also operates Cafe Gratitude? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. I think the main guy we interviewed that day was was Ryland. They have a, a pretty fascinating story, too. And I think somewhat similar to yours, where they were engaged with veganism, thinking it was sort of the way and the you know only way and then discovering the importance of integrating animals and regenerative agriculture and then they started that that whole farm as as a result of that understanding right yeah yeah exactly yeah they you know they ran cafe gratitude for a number of years and they had an they had two different farms that were providing the food for the farm and on one of the farms they actually had a an older cow that was just there to kind of produce manure and you know uh fertility and this cow had actually um 
was getting older and sick. And so they decided they were going to kind of, you know, put the, put the cow down. And in, instead of just kind of like throwing the meat away or whatever they were going to do with it, they actually decided to feed it to their employees, um, some of the farm workers. And the vegan community freaked out. The vegan community came down hard on them. And so we were able to talk with Ryland about that experience because you know, they were trying to do the best thing for the the cow, really. They were trying to, to respect the animal in a way. And they wrote like wonderful blogs and writing about the experience as vegans who had this hard decision to make to kill a cow and then share the, you know. And so they had this kind of reckoning experience of like, oh, you know, this is what the vegan community is. They're actually pretty mean and malicious when you cross boundaries or you try to change the, the rules a little bit. So yeah, they definitely had their own kind of reckoning with some similar concepts that, that we're trying to discuss. Yeah. And this was a long time ago too. So it's like, I don't even know where they're at with any of that right now. Yeah. But um, I, when we were there, they were still pretty plant-based. Like they were still pretty like pushing the sort of more like um, like, is it Michael Pollan who's like, you know, eat plants, most like mostly plants, eat food, mostly plants or something whole like that. food, mostly plants, you know, less meat, better meat. Yeah. Type like, deal. That's kind of I, I, that was at least their point of view when we were there. But yeah. it might have changed. Interesting. Yeah, it's wild seeing all this sort of change and, and flow as, as time goes and our understanding sort of shifts and deepens. And I know that somewhat mirrors your story as well. And, and based on everything that you've been studying and learning along the way, what is your perception of, oh, I, there, I, th I see there's, there's, if we look at the overview, there's, you know, everyone, most people are just, I think, blissfully ignorant of, of all this, just completely unaware, kind of don't care, you know? And then there are people, then there's like people will turn on and they'll start to go in different directions. It's like, I'm going to go full carnivore and only eat meat. And then there's like, I'm going to only eat plants. And there's like everything in between that. And I'm so fascinated. It's just such an amazing part of our culture and society as, as all these different ways that they can unfold. And there's perfectly healthy, healthy people seemingly on both sides of the spectrum and everything in between. And it's just, it's so amazing. And mind-bending that that we can all go through this but clearly something is not quite right clearly at a, at the at a foundational level it's very wrong it, it's it's very wrong and and it we're the, the people who are curious and, and awake and aware just what are we going to be able to do about this there's got to be something we can do to change the way this is going because it's not going in a good direction we need to fix it we need to evolve and improve and innovate and we're all kind of looking for answers and diving deeper and, and as you mentioned it, it's so amazing to think regenerative agriculture came as a way to sequester carbon. Now you have this deeper understanding as, as a, at a principle level. What was that like coming to that understanding? And now are you feeling like you've got a grip on it or is it still just like immensely magic and, and massive? <laughs> well, good question. you know, as, as far as like the carbon thing goes, I have sort of reached this point where I actually think it's really, really dangerous how much we fixate on carbon in every aspect of our society. Because carbon, like, I've, I've been th thinking of this this sort of analogy recently, and we've been discussing it as we've been writing it in our, in our script, is like, the earth is like a body. It's a living organism. And the fever that it has from, it is like the carbon in the atmosphere, right? Like, it has a fever because it has a million wo festering wounds and infections and the fever is just is just a symptom of one of those things right but there's all of these other problems and when we fixate on trying to solve carbon or trying to put carbon back into the soil it's really really easy to start having this reductionist view of ecology and nature and start continuing to impose the exact same mentality onto the landscape that created the problem of carbon in the atmosphere to begin with and so my point of view is mo much more around how can we start understanding what homo sapiens actually is not this sort of programmed conditioned image of what homo sapiens is um and and, and can we reconnect with what what we really are what is our true nature um and by doing that reintegrate ourselves into ecology understand that we are inextricably related to the landscapes that we're a part of and that we consume from whether you know it's from some 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 rare earth's mine in china like nature is like main is making this conversation possible it's making our lives possible and we need to have responsibility for that um but then also you know the self-determination for communities to be able to live in, in an ecosystem and so the recognition of 
that carbon isn't the only part of climate change led to all of these other things that we realize that it's like there's so many aspects of our society that are fundamentally functionally like this is like a by design kind of thing separating us from nature and separating us from our ability to actually coexist within it and make it better you know even if you just think about like how challenging it is for people to buy land in order to perform to to practice holistic management or regenerative agriculture like that's one aspect of this incredibly dense and sophisticated network of issues that is fun that is trying to urbanize us trying to sedentarize us and trying to keep us away from being able to interact with the land so it's like you know, I think our view went from this sort of like nebulous idea of put carbon back in the soil to like, oh, these are structures and systems that humans have created. Can we break those down? Can we understand why these systems arose? And can we dismantle them in a way that creates a more just world is kind of more where we're at now. And I think that, you know, the experience of having that realization when it initially happened is very important too, because it was again, that first summer of being in the van and, and communicating with people. And, you know, the place we were at mentally was so indicative of, I feel like where so many other, especially young people are at right now, where there's this huge fear about climate change and we're being offered the simple solution of, well, actually we can grow food in a way that just sucks up all that carbon and all is good. And there's a lot of movies and um, narratives that uh, a lot of people are jumping onto. Like we did that first year, like, oh, hell yeah, put the carbon in the soil. And so as we were traveling around the uh, that, that first summer, we got in contact with this guy named Peter Donovan. And Peter Donovan is kind of one of the OG soil carbon guys. I mean, decades ago, he formed what's called the the Soil Carbon Coalition. And it was one of the first group of people really pushing for like, hey, if we take care of the soil, it absorbs carbon. It's actually very important for soil. And so we were so excited that we got his email. We contacted him and he was living in this school bus on a farm. Uh, So we were like, hell yeah. So we like meet this guy. But then very quickly, he was like, you know what, I've actually taken a huge step back from the carbon narrative. We were like, oh, oh no, that's not what we wanted to hear. Our whole movie's about car-. And so he's like, yeah, actually I'm focusing way more on essentially like water cycles and stuff like this. And he, you know, he explained to us, he's like, yeah, you know, carbon in the soil is very important. That's part of it. But he was trying to communicate with us. There's a bigger picture here. And so what he did is he, he did this really simple, really cool um, visual experiment for us where he got this chair and on the backrest of the chair he had pinned this two by four that was sticking straight up and at the end of that two by four was a skateboard bearing and in that bearing he attached another two by four and so he sat there and he said you know this is how a simple system works and he dropped the second two by four and it swung around the, the skateboard bearing in a circle and he said this is a simple system with some sort of predictability, you're going to be able to guess how many times on average that single piece of wood is going to spin around. And then on the end of the second piece of wood, he put another piece of wood at the skateboard bearing. And so he dropped two pieces of wood and he did it a few times where he said, this is how the world actually works because the world is complex systems. And you you couldn't find with any predictability how many times the second piece of wood was going to spin. Sometimes it was once, Sometimes it was 15. It was so erratic. And so he was trying to explain to us when he's like, when we're talking about human society, when we're talking about ecology and ecosystems, when we're talking about carbon and food, this is how it works. And so he, we had this incredible moment when we understood that the problem of climate change, the, pl- the problem of ecological destruction is far, far greater than just one symptom of carbon in the atmosphere. It's poisoned water. It's the water, you know, there's this myriad of things that we have to really take into account. So from that moment on, we were like, okay, we have to begin discussing this from a a way different approach. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that story. It really illuminates this concept of complex and and chaotic systems, like like the weather, for example. it's so funny because we're, you know, we've got these weathermen in these apps saying like, oh, it's going to rain on Tuesday. But that's really just like a guess. Like there's really no, we have no idea what the weather is going to do three, four days out from now. It's like we can kind of guess, but it's it's this chaotic, complex system that's really just pretty random. And we can, you know, throw our, our guesses and estimations at it. But ultimately, it's it's very much just up in the air. And I think another 
beautiful aspect of chaos is is creativity. You mentioned that when you first started, some magical sort of happenstance things unfolded from the Savory Institute. And and creativity is another thing that's like this infinite complex web and you're sort of navigated through it by something that could be maybe it's your intuition or your your your, your daemon and, and all of a sudden you've got these synchronicities unfolding kind of guiding you along the path. How has that been navigating this infinite sphere that we call regenerative agriculture, which is, as you mentioned, a network of, of little things connecting just kind of the whole world into it. Has Have you been sort of guided by your artistic vision that, this whole time? And, and what has that experience been like connecting with that? Oh, man. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. I mean, like the way that we talk about it is that the idea for Death in the Garden came to us, not from us. And so we just happened to be the people to grab onto it and try to and, and had the privilege and the ability to do something with it um, and to really go on this journey. And so, yeah, like it's it's been interesting um, the times where we've lacked faith and we've found ourselves facing those resistances when and then the times where we have a lot of faith and we're just like in this flow, this flow of the universe, how everything is just like coming for us and everything is just like working out. And so it has been this interesting kind of dance with like following our intuition, but also understanding that our intuition is kind of like only half of the story. It's also like that there are these synchronicities that come up that are extra, you know, that are outside of our control or outside of our awareness. So it's, it's been pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, the whole past three years has been a wild ride of uh, synchronicity, the right person coming at the right time, the right idea coming at the right time. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, you know, when you, I feel like when, you know, and this is more lofty life philosophy, but like when you really, you develop the sense to listen to your intuition. And I like calling it the muse, right? I like the, I like the terminology of the muse. There is, there's a creative force out there that is trying to, trying to trickle you ideas and trying to give you the right idea at the right time you know it's like not to compare us to like steve jobs or anything but like i don't like steve jobs didn't come up with the idea of the iphone right like actually decades earlier people were trying to make the iphone so there's these ambient ideas that float within a culture and it's whoever can grab it first and get it out there and do it right gets the idea right and so and that's been such a thing for us where it's like all these ideas if our, we're, we're told to try to jump onto that. And if we can, then that opens up a whole other door where the right person comes in, the right book came into our lives, the right opportunity came into our lives. And so, yeah. And so it's been a, a process of like step by step, you know, trying to trust your intuition with what's right and relaxing, knowing that the right thing is going to come at the right time. And if you have the courage and wherewithal to keep, you know, I like the, the phrase that nature, uh, nature loves courage, right? Like, um, nature will open door, the universe will open doors for you, but you, but it's not going to make you go through the door. And so I feel like when we think about, you know, opportunity and creativity, we think that if we just kind of get really centered, everything's going to fall in line. I think when you get centered and you get really in line with your intuition, doors open, but you still have to be the one to walk through that door, which is really hard over and over and over. I mean, the, the production of Death in the Garden has been a story of doors being opened and us being so just like tired and nervous to keep walking through doors. But the moment you walk through that door and go into the next room, then another door opens and another door opens. But it you do have to put the effort in to keep walking through those doors. Yeah. And, and it's hard. It's 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 challenging because, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot recently is like now what we're saying is a lot less controversial like us being like, hey, maybe this carbon thing is like a little bit of a distraction. Maybe the climate change narrative is like trying is like really fundamentally supporting big business. And maybe there's like a way we're being manipulated um, and maybe we should focus more locally and focus on our ecosystems. And um, that was actually like an extremely con controversial take at the beginning of this. Uh, the idea that we weren't focusing on carbon offended people and made people really pissed. And people thought that we were like shilling for the fossil fuel industry. And it's like, okay, that would be nice. If I was, maybe I would have some money um, to, to do this film. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like uh, the, the, that was pretty controversial. It was controversial to criticize renewable energy and electric vehicles when we were. Now, I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that like, you know, ex uh, 
extending mining like 200 fold is like not particularly good for the planet. But literally two and a half years ago, that was like sacrilegious to say. And then, you know, to talk about veganism in particular, there's a lot more people who are waking up to the idea that that, you know, maybe this like plant based industrial food system is part of the problem. And so that was a big part of our journey was, um, you know, dealing with the 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 recognition that, you know, when you're talking about something controversial and you're talking about something that maybe people haven't come to yet, uh, people aren't going to like you very much. People are, people are going to be kind of mad that you're saying that kind of stuff and that you're challenging the sort of the wisdom. Um, and so that was another aspect is like, you know, that door behind that door is loss and is grief and is pain, but you get, you, 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 the, the bravery that you have to exhibit in order to go through that door, I do think that the universe rewards you for that. Beautiful, so uh, so well said. And that quote, that quote coming to mind: Nat- "Nature loves courage." I think maybe Terence Terence McKenna. I think that's a yeah. That's the this one. Is such a such an amazing. You land on a feather bed. <laughs> <laughs> I stole it from I stole it from Terence. It's yeah. so good. It's so good. It's such a nice reminder, and it reminds me of this other one where we have this saying of like. Wind, opp- window of opportunity but it's that's a bad way of looking at it because then you might get stuck sort of staring out the window of opportunity but like it's really more of a door like the door of opportunity is a much better way to say because you've got to do the work of like opening up and going through and then yeah you that's such a beautiful vision of like this series of doors sort of ascending up the path of, of self-actualization where we, we continually must be courageous in each kind of moment of of transcendence up this path of, of self-actualization as, as we continue to, to grow and evolve. And especially when you're on a creative journey, like a, a hero's journey, like, like you're on, where you're trying to deliver this, this understanding, this new way of knowing to the tribe, to the society, to the culture, culture at large. It's such a powerful way to, way to be in the world. And I'm curious now if this has imbued your life with a certain sense of purpose and, and meaning and, and passion and energy that maybe you were lacking before. Like, how has it changed the way that you approach your day-to-day? How has it changed you being yourself in in the world Mm, yeah good question we talk about that a lot actually where you know especially when you know you're a teenager or you're in your 20s there's such a desire and search for meaning and the 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 pain that happens with a lack of meaning can lead you to you know partying and bad relationships and alcohol and just a sense of uh kind of being lost and confused and most of my 20s were a huge search for that meaning. I knew that I was looking for the meaning and I knew I was looking for what I wanted to do with my life and what I cared about. And so in a sense, there was some meaning and the meaning was to look for the meaning. Um, but then once we began making this film, once, you know, because I had all these ideas about society and civilization and ecology and all these things before we made the film. But then kind of that moment we decided like, we're going to make this movie and we don't even know really what it's fully about or why we're doing it. It's really hard to describe the sense of purpose because the, the, the shit we walked through and the hard times of just like, you know, not having money, not knowing where we were going to sleep next, you know, we didn't care. We were psychos. Like we, like it didn't phase us, you know, like most people would have quit and just like gone home. But once you know what you're supposed to do with your life, you're like, I'll be like, I'll be homeless. I I don't care. Like I'm going to do the thing. And we said it so many times where we were, we were just tired and we didn't know what to do next, but we were like, we are going to do this. We like, there's no way, like I will spend every day of my life trying to finish this thing. Cause it's the thing that I have to do. You know, when you really accept calling and when you really accept something that you are passionate about and that you know has great meaning to the world at large and that it's more than just you 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 get overcome with energy like you don't you know you're just you're so passionate and it's all you think about that there's you become so psycho obsessed and so it, i'm so grateful to have that because i spent so much of my life not having that insane drive to do something and now you know for the past few years, I've woken up every day knowing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And every day is figuring out how to put the pieces together to make that happen. Yeah. And, you know, just as you were talking, I was just thinking about like how how challenging it was growing up and 
feeling directionless and trying to like make meaning of a life that just didn't feel meaningful that like I didn't feel like my direction was actually going to lead to anywhere impactful like I always had this intuition that I wanted to do something that was going to have an impact outside of myself I knew I was never going to be satisfied with having a good job so that I can have a family and so that I can have that kind of like that kind of a life. I just, I just knew that that wasn't me. That was never going to be me. Not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but like, for me, it's just like, I knew, I, I knew I had something to say and I just didn't know how to say it. And doing this project has made me become more myself than I ever was without it. Because it's like, finally, I have an avenue to express myself and express all of the painful things that I've wanted to express and haven't felt like I had the ability to for my entire life. And, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. And so it's like, it's encouraged me to like be a writer and actually just do the thing, you know, rather than being afraid or thinking that's an impractical or something like that. It's like, there, there's so many aspects of this that have fundamentally changed who I am and how I present myself in the world. Like, I used to be like such a party girl. I used to just be like so, you know, over the top extroverted. And now I feel like I I a lot more myself and I'm a lot more introverted and I'm a lot more kind of focused on like reading books and learning and, you know, and having cool conversations and meeting people and connecting with people in like a much more real and tangible way. And that feels really good. Um that being said though, like I've also come to this realization that it's like, I'm not for everybody. And that's okay too. Like before, when I was this little party girl, I was trying to be everybody's friend. I was trying to be like, you know, like, like I I was just people pleasing. And I just, I had no idea who I was. I didn't, I I didn't know how to stand for anything because I was so afraid of what that would mean to stand Mm -hmm. for something. And now I've just so much more embraced that there is a level of alienation that comes from standing for something, but that on the other side of that alienation is like deeper and more real connection than I could have ever imagined when I was before, when I was afraid. So, yeah. And, and, and if I could add a detail on this too, it's like, and maybe you, you felt this way too, Marin, where when you, when you're on, you know, depending on how people like to phrase this in their own lives, whether it's, they like to use the terminology of the universe or God or whatever it is, there's this experience that we're in is, I I think is asking um, of everybody, like it's trying to give them their path. It's trying to ask them to follow certain things. And in the confusion maybe of our youths, I remember thinking that I like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I'm supposed to put my energy here and here. And it was always such a grind. You know, sometimes I had successes, but it was like I was forcing the doors open. I was like pick locking and kicking it open. But then once I like kind of clicked into the real path, it was just like, it's so easy. It's actually, it's like, it's like, it's that thing of like, ask and you shall receive. It was like, oh, I I would like to meet that person. And then all of a sudden we're in that person's house. And you know what I mean? Whereas before when I thought my path was this thing or this thing, it was like such a, such a struggle to get any traction. But now it's just like so flowy, you know? Yeah. And, And if I could just add another little thing too, I fundamentally believe that like we're all we were all born in this time for a reason and a lot of people don't like that sort of idea of fate or destiny or something like that I I was listening to a podcast recently and they delineated the difference between fate fate is like what's going to happen to you whether you control it or not destiny is something that you have action Mm -hmm. towards and I think that we were all born at this time for a really good reason. Um, and I know I was looking on this like anti-natalist website the other day because it was kind of funny. Um, and they're like, they're vegan to anti-natalist too. So they, they have like a vegan agenda as well. Um, but no one of sex the, and no good food. Yeah, they were like, there is no good reason to reproduce, blah, blah, blah. Like it's always harmful. And I was like, oh my God. But one of the things that I, they said that I thought was pretty interesting is they're really, really fixated on this idea that like, we don't consent to being born. And I just don't think that there's any proof either way of like whether or not we consent to being born. No one knows. We don't, we don't, that, that's like saying that, 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 you know, heaven exists or doesn't exist. Like I, we talked to Sheldon Solomon and he was like, the only reasonable, like rational uh, way to think about th- these sort of like lofty religious ideas is like an agnostic one of like, I actually, we, we have no idea. There's no way of knowing. Um, but so it's like, I think that, even if you have to kind of force yourself to think this, 
it'll ultimately lead you to having a better life is if you believe that you were born for a reason and you're you're here for a reason. You know, you may have to make that meaning, but if you do work towards making that meaning, then you may have that moment of locking in and being like, oh shit, I found my place in the universe. Like who who knew that that was even possible? But I think right now it's like our society just kind of doesn't, it's like your destiny is like what career you have and eventually are able to retire from, you know, like that's, that's how sort of denuded of like, it's it's just kind of bleak. It's like disenchanted. It's not, it's not this exciting sort of magical, mysterious view of yourself. And I think that we would all do a lot better in our, in our lives if we, if we actually believed that there was maybe some magic happening and that there's some reason for us being here. Absolutely. And that is such a powerful, powerful way of looking at the world and the experience that you've shared there. It makes me think of a few, a few things like why, one, why is, is, you know, how do we get into this trap? And then why are so many people suffering as a result of that? And I don't, think anyone knows that answer but it's interesting food for thought and it there's also this mirror between what you are creating the film about regenerative agriculture this sort of holistic integration with nature as opposed to something like industrial agriculture where we're forcing so much of our preconceived notions of how things should be and how we want them to be and trying to extract a certain amount of numbers, whatever those numbers are, whether it's profit margin or, um, you know, certain certain amount of, of crops sold at the store. As, as an example, we're sort of taking that whole mindset of industrialization and, and applying it to our individual experience. And so many people are sucked into that just way of seeing the world that sort of was somehow generated back, back in the day when we first started really using a lot of machines and got obsessed with technology to, to a certain degree. And and there's this other way of looking at the world with so much more magic where we can create, where we can integrate with nature, where nature has its own intelligence, it's had, has its own creativity. It's not a dead flat surface for us to sort of build upon, but we can build with it. We can co-create with Mother Nature. And, and there's this intelligence that we can connect with and, and use that to enhance our lives in, in a major, major way. And it it's just not something that is really taught in any way. I think some of us maybe get fortunate and tap into it and we're sort of struggling through explaining it and describing it in a way that can help others kind of see the path and see the flow. And it's so important because it's such a key to unlocking a lot of the suffering that, that we're all struggling from. I think some people find it through things like psychedelics. Other people find it through just like immersion in nature, but we're all stuck in these boxes made by culture inside of these boxes made by, you know, builders in our rooms inside these, you know, boxes made by technology where we've got all these ideas on our phone and breaking out of it is just like so important. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately what you are describing here is what we came to where it was like, we thought we were making a film about regenerative agriculture and it quickly became to trying to describe what you're talking about, that if we, are attempting to make not only our own lives, but the world a better place and fix the problems we're seeing, but we're using the same thinking that caused all of these problems, we're just creating more of the same. And so again, during that first um, summer of filming, we had a number of conversations that, that made us, we learned this new word called epistemology. It's our favorite new word, epistemology. There's, I think there's a lot of ways of describing the word epistemology, but it, the way we're using it is what is your what is your foundation of knowledge you know if you think about a house you have to put the foundation down first but if you the 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 writer um gregory bateson um calls it pathologies of epistemology so he says what if our epistem our epistemology the very foundation like the first thing you build your your tree of knowledge from is flawed you know, what if to the very core and until you get to that very, you know, to operate in the world, you have to make basic assumptions about how the world works, you know, and as a human society, we have to make basic assumptions about where humans came from, where humans are and where humans are going. But if those assumptions are not in accordance with how the rest of the universe actually works, you're just going to find more and more chaos. 
So, and I hope I'm making sense here, but what we're trying to do with the project and our writing and the film is get the audience to think, hey, what are the basic assumptions that you actually think about the world that you might not even actually recognize you're making? Um, we like to play with this terminology of mythology. You know, what mythology do you believe? Because as modern neoliberal atheistic scientific society, we think we have shed off the bad habits of the past of telling ourselves narratives and we don't believe in the gods and all these things when that couldn't be any farther from the truth. We very much have a mythology. We as modern humans very much tell ourselves and repeat stories about how the world works. And that story, and this is the more insidious part, is so ambient. You know, nobody sits you down as a child and says, hey, this is how the world works. You, you hear it in newspapers. You hear it in cartoons. You hear it ambiently. You're, you're offered a worldview because it's just kind of latent in everything. And, in, and so as we begin to devise new agricultural systems, as we begin to figure out how to get energy in different ways – if that mythology is still permeating those things, it's just more of the same. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, I think that as a, as a society and as people, you know, people don't like to hear this because everyone thinks about the crises that we are, that we're facing, the converging crises that we're facing. And everyone's like, what do we do? We have to do something. And I think that, part of the problem when we're talking about things like the the foundations of our understanding is if you're going right into action without critically assessing that foundation, then you are invariably going to just repeat the same mistakes and create all of these other negative externalities. You're going to create all of these problems that come from techno fixes. You know, these, there's this book that I was reading and, um, he calls them residue problems. And it's like, you know, you, you techno fix one problem and you create 10 different other problems that you then have to solve. And a good way to think about this is like the problem of, of damming uh, salmon rivers. If you, if you put a dam in a river with salmon, you're going to have to create all of these technologies and, and do all of these ridiculous things in order to just keep that river system alive because of how much you've disrupted the, the ecosystem function from the salmon. And I can, I could get into more detail about that, but really what I want to highlight is that right now we've been so psychically cut off from our intuition as like animals on this earth um, via all of the boxes that you talked about. Um, but we also have such a misunderstanding of history and we have such a misunderstanding of, of worldview. So it's like what I think people really should be doing now in the present is like, read a lot of books, try to understand the complexity of the world that we live in rather than just trying to come up with all of these solutions because that that epistemological framework, we have to unlearn it in order to be able to parse out like, okay, what, what works and what doesn't, what is pathological and what isn't, you know, what is like a cancerous aspect of our understanding of our place in the universe and what, you know, is potentially incredibly generative. Like there's, you know, th there's, there's not all bad things in the epistemology that we have that, that we're trying to outline. Um, there's a lot of bad things in it though. <laughs> and there's a lot of problems that we've come to. And, you know, so I'm, I'm so much more of an advocate for like, if you want to like change the world and try to start changing the world, really slow down really start thinking about how we got here and think about those root causes. And it's not as fun as like going to a protest or buying a Tesla or something, you know, or, you know, it's like those, those are more, those are more fun. And you kind of get to pat yourself on the back and like, you know, kind of virtue signal about that, but that's not actually solving the problems that we think it is. Such deep wisdom. And it makes me think of, a story you told on the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast with Kate Kavanaugh about Sky Woman, which was a really beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful uh, myth that that you shared. Would you mind sharing that for the listeners now? Because I, I I don't remember it well enough to 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 share it, but it, that was that struck me as a, as a really beautiful foundational myth that that Native Americans had. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Our, our, we have a very touchy cat, and she's up here <laughs> munching on my headphones. Yeah, we can both tag team this, you know, because this goes towards this epistemology, you know, whether. <laughs> One second. All right, what are you doing, you little dork? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. 
Well, you know, maybe I could start by saying, you know, it, it's a bit it's a bit hard because obviously this isn't our like spiritual tradition, but I think that right now, if, if any time is important for us to st all start engaging with all different kind of cosmologies and mythologies, like now is the time to start like, yeah. you know, comparing and contrasting yeah. um, without necessarily being like, I, I take this on and I have the right to really yeah. like talk about it and express it. But well, and the, the point here is that all cultures have a Genesis story. Oh, you little jerk. <laughs> So all you you can edit this out if you need to. Um, all cultures have a Genesis story, uh, and the Genesis story within a culture informs the people where they came from, how did they start, and where are they going, and what's the purpose of their culture. And again, whether we realize it or not, or want to admit it or not, even in today's modern um, scientific society, the Garden of Eden story from the Bible is still our Genesis story. The gen the the basic print lessons that will are learned from the Genesis story of the Garden of Eden fit very well actually into the scientific worldview. Because without needing to recite the whole story, the lessons to be learned from that story are that humans are cursed, we're inherently flawed, we have something in us that makes us kind of rotten and doomed to fuck shit up. So we need to control that. Um, it is our destiny to kind of pillage and toil the earth and destroy everything so that we can sustain ourselves. You know, God literally says like, wow, you fucked up. So now you have to farm because farming sucks, you dummies. You know, that's essentially what he says in that book. And so there's a lot of lessons that we're supposed to inhabit as uh, how humans came to be on this planet. And they tell us, it tells us that we're bad. It tells us that we're doomed. It tells us all these things. And it tells us that we're kind of separate from nature and we're subjecting nature and we're not part of the living world. Whereas, and so there can only be certain outcomes with a society that truly believes that. And you see those narratives still um, bouncing around the modern world. You know, this idea that the reason why the world is so bad is, be well, because humans were just, some of us are greedy. There's just greed and we're bad and we just do messed up stuff. So we need to create democracies to help combat the fact that we're bad. We need to create all these policies and laws around this reality that we're just always going to do bad things unless we're told not to. And there's the police force there where if you, and so that has certain outcomes, right? That is always going to have certain outcomes in the world. If we truly believe that even as scientific, rational people, whereas if you contrast that with many societies, but in this instance, uh, Native Americans in you know from North America, they have the their Genesis story is Sky Woman, and I'll let you fill in. But to to kind of uh, describe it is that Sky Woman, their story, the 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 basic principles to learn from the story of Sky Woman is we belong here, we are part of nature, we are good, we can make this place better. Everything is a gift. And although we have to essentially take other lives to eat, that's a blessing. And it makes us really responsible for all the for all the animals, for all the plants. And this is a beautiful garden that we need to take care of and give back to. And that Genesis story and the lessons to be learned from that story can only have certain outcomes. And if you look at anthropology and the stories and the accounts of what this continent was and what the people were you begin to see how that story enacts itself yeah and and i think it's also important too to to you know because i know sometimes probably people hear that and think like well i'm not run by genesis like i don't even think about that i wasn't even raised a christian and it's like that what i think is important for people to understand is that then what um during like the scientific revolution and the enlightenment christian thinkers were able to take were, were whether consciously or unconsciously they were taking that that epistemological knowledge and then they were subjecting it to science and they were subjecting it to this uh reductionism and determinism and so they they then were able to separate all of the sort of like you know like w within within the genesis story there's still an animacy to the world right like there's still an animacy in christianity but over time secular secularism sort of denuded that of the animacy and separated those two worlds and so then we have science and then and now what i think we what people are whether they're aware of it or not it's like 
if you're if you if you fully believe in like the big bang that's also a genesis story that's also like an unproven genesis story there's no way for any for for scientists to know that they're able to do mathematic calculations to try to pinpoint the birth of the universe and how these things work but there's no concrete way to actually understand that and i'm not like a big bang denier i'm just saying that's also a story that we're telling ourselves right um the problem with the scientific worldview is that it has reduced everything down to its constituent parts and removed all of the animacy from the world. And so then it's a lot easier to objectify and subject the world when you don't, when you believe that everything is like a dead and denuded of life and denuded of sentience and consciousness, it's a lot easier to subject the world to your whims in that case. And then if you kind of couple that with this sort of like distance from nature from the christian tradition as it evolved over time um this distance and that that god is that we are um, made in god's image and that we're somehow special if you combine those two ideas of that the world is dead and that we are the only things with consciousness it becomes really easy then to do what we've done to the world and whereas you know if you believe that you're if you belong to the world and you're responsible to it and that you have a role here then you're going to have a very, very different understanding of how to be in the world. And if you're just a part, you know, that you're in relationship with the rest of the world. Absolutely. Yeah, every, everything really is rooted in, in our belief system. And, and then everything that sort of grows out is sort of a manifestation of, of that soil of, of belief. And the reason why I came to listening to that podcast you were on with, with Kate Cavanaugh was because she was at the bison harvest at Rome Ranch in Austin, Texas, which was an amazing experience. And the reason why I found out about that was because the first episode of the podcast you made with Death in the Garden was also at the bison ranch at uh, the bison harvest at Rome Ranch outside of Austin, Texas. And I'd like to say thank you for, for making that episode because it was a really amazing experience uh, a beautiful one that I'm glad that I was able to experience. And, and that was thanks to the, the work that you did. So even, even. Oh, that's great. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. That was, that was amazing. So I guess we can and talk about that for, for a bit because that's, it, it was a really amazing as someone who has been uh, not really pretty, dis- you know, living like an average America. I never, I didn't grow up on a farm. I'd never, you know, been a part of, never gone hunting, never seen an, an animal harvested, and and being a part of that was really amazing at an experiential level to to see that process unfold and it, then also see the entire uh, butchering process. Kate gave a demonstration of like, okay, this is where this piece of meat comes from. This is where that piece of meat comes from. She took the lung of the bison and blew it up like a big balloon, and we could all touch the the lung to see how how lung works. And it it was really magical experience to be out there on the ranch the bison are such majestic creatures who are just like enjoying their energy too they're all just kind of i thought they were going to be charging at us you know and angry that one of their you know herdsmen had been killed but they just they were just chill they were just enjoying the grass just having a good time i think you know two of them were, were at, like mating like during the entire process like they, they could have <laughs> cared less it was just, just these <laughs> life and death at the same time yeah. it was such a cool <laughs> such a cool time so i i guess i'm, I'm kind of sort of just rambling at this point but um yeah so what what was what did what did you make of make of that experience when when you went well it's hard not to think about that experience also reflected in the other similar experiences we've had throughout making this film since we've started making this film we've seen a number of animals uh die and be butchered and slaughtered and so they're all kind of one and the same because you you see similar things but yeah rome ranch was the first time for us and um you know, when it happened, um, it was really incredible because, you know, the bison goes down. And then when we were there, and maybe this is because we had a smaller group of people there. It was just like four of us. A lot of the, the the bison definitely came up and smelled the dead bison, smelled the blood. And it was like almost every member of the herd kind of took their turn to smell and then walk away. Like they took a little moment to recognize the the, the passing and then they walked away. But then something really cool happened when we got when we were trying to take the body away is that, first of all, the whole herd did a big stampede. They all just like kicked up dust and were running around the area just like, bah, and we were like, that isn't really intense. I'm chasing, chasing her down. But but one cool thing that actually happened the day before was we had gotten there the day before the, the harvest is going to happen. And we were in the little side by side just sitting in the middle of the herd. 
and these two little these two uh bison came up and um they uh cody who was the guy managing the farm at the time and um taylor and taylor both looked at us like with these wide eyes and we we're like what they were like those are the two that are our options for killing tomorrow and they're the only bison that came to see us these two little females just came up and like looked at us and they were like oh my god but then you know when we were taking the body away the next day it was it was uh moving and heartbreaking in a way because the the sister the one we didn't choose mm-hmm. was chasing kind of the body she was trying to say her last goodbyes and so it's still there's still those those hardships but then we you know we, we butchered it down and had the same experience of getting to hold the organs and see the body and and you know yeah see the herd go back to normal life and see them move on and uh not be stressed out and not be weird every time the humans came around and then, but maybe you should describe, you know, you, uh, your experience with that, but also the sheep and everything. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I just want to say is like something that um, our friend Jorgen said to us, which is, I, I think about a lot is like these animals that we are in such a relationship with. And obviously bison are a little different because they're a little bit more wild, but they, they grew up in relationship with the native Americans. Like that's just a fact, you know, they, they, the, the way that the indigenous people of this, this continent were managing the landscapes and managing the prairies. Like there was a relationship there. There was a reverence and there was a respect and there was like a contract. Um, And so what Jorgen says is that like, for better or for worse, whether we like it or not, we made a contract with these animals thousands and thousands of years ago. And that part of that contract is that I protect your, I will protect the herd as long as you give me, sacrifice some of your herd to me to, so that I can eat. And so that's sort of what we can see in, in like many, many different kinds of systems, right? Like whether it's a pastoral system or it's a farming, just like a ranching system. Um, and I think that we can reconnect better to that sort of contract, obviously, if we're managing our animals in a very respectful way where we're honoring their contribution to the ecology. Like, obviously, I'm not talking about like the I think that the factory farming system is like such a betrayal of that contract. Um, it's it's an imposition of humans over over animals and thinking that we're better than them. Um and so I think that, you know, there, there is a level of understanding and respect that's in the transference of life and death in, in the, that experience. And it was a very incredible experience to witness the, the bison slaughter as the first death that we really witnessed because bison are so, they're, they're such powerful animals. And I don't know if you had this experience, but it was just like this wave of energy went through the air and just like hit me and it was just like oh my god like she's everywhere now like she was just this sort of like beam of consciousness before like in the the form of this this animal and now she's like reintegrated back into something something that i can't i can't articulate or understand but that's like how it felt um and so you know that recognition in that moment of like what death is and and you know there's like belief associated with this there's like way there's faith there's things that I can't I can't particularly like prove but I think I was connected enough to my intuition at that time and still um and I think anyone who goes and witnesses a slaughter for that reason of like I need to understand better what I'm doing here on earth and I need to understand better what my role here is um I think that it's it's a common thing to have that sort of experience and and really start to understand that not only is death necessary for life, but that there's a there is a connection and a respect and a lineage that associated with humans being in contact with that experience and really taking responsibility for it. And I don't know if you had this experience too, but like looking inside of an animal, every time I've done it since the first time at, at Rome Ranch, it's just like it's like I'm like tapping into this like ancestral body that's like always been there but forgot. You know, was brought into this really weird artificial sanitized world and then it's like you step into it and you're like, "Oh my god, this is what my body expects is to see this, is to see the inside of animals and to to, to break animals down and to understand that this relationship with death and life." And so that was really powerful for me is like and and we, and we've had this experience a lot of times. Like I've also had this experience herding sheep of of like tapping in, and my body just knows what to do. Like my body just knows how to herd sheep, 
And I don't know if that's true for everybody, but like that was that was the experience that I had. It was like it was like I my body expects that this is going to be part of my mm-hmm. life. Um, and so I think that that's a really powerful experience. And, you know, that. Yeah, what I was just going to say, and, and maybe this is just particular to like herd and flock animals. But when you're, you know, every time we've witnessed the the death, death of an animal, it's been it, while they're amongst the rest of their community. And you get this sense when an animal dies next to the rest of the flock or herd that like, it was never really an individual, you know, especially with these herd animals. It's a, it's a group, it's a community. And that when an individual does die, they're almost absorbed into the community at large. You get the sense that like, they didn't really go anywhere. Like they're just, they, they, be, they become part of the larger ecosystem. And it's this really strange sense. And it's, you know, we, cause when Marin killed, uh, butchered and slaughtered a, a, a sheep, it was half a foot away from a bunch of the other sheep and the other sheep like didn't run away you know they were like they were super curious with what we were doing and they were still cuddling with Marin, even though she had like cut its throat and they were and it wasn't even like they didn't know what was happening like they saw they would smell the blood and they were like oh that's blood and they were like oh, okay and then bump up you know they just go about their day and so it's it doesn't seem like this isolated scary thing it's like oh, this is actually just part of this system. It's part of the larger network of the relationships we all have with the landscape. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people would just be like, oh, well, that's because these animals are more dumb than we are. But I don't think that that's true at all. I think that they have such a more keen awareness of what it means to be in that relationship of life and death. And, you know, one of the things that I was just thinking as you were talking is like, you know, I think part of the reason why we fear death as people so much and why it's so much more devastating. And and I'm not trying to minimize like how much grief is associated with death. Even killing animals, there's a level of grief and feeling. And I think that that's really important for people to, to feel. Um, but because so seldom do we give back our bodies to the ecosystems that that pro- that provided for us because that doesn't happen i think that it makes it a lot harder for us because we have disconnected so much from this sense of like yes i am part of this greater life cycle and i am only going to be here for a short amount of time and that's okay like we become very attached to the individual ego like are we ever like the world that we've lived that we've kind of has has been constructed around us is very very individualistic and ego driven and so it's really hard for us to comprehend what it would feel like to to die in the presence of of your family or your loved ones and it being that thing of like oh this person is just becoming more life for what 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 else is all around we we don't have that um and i think that a, a part a big part of that problem is the way that we do burials um you know i think that when we put ourselves in boxes and don't let ourselves decay, I think that that creates like a sort of a psychic schism um, for everyone around. Uh, And, you know, obviously this has been going on since like the civil war. And so there's, there's a bit of a, a reconnection that we need to have. And part of that is recognizing that there is like, there's a role that our bodies and I think our consciousness in the world plays as part of like this like soup that like brings things up and then takes things down. And it comes, it's like this, this like waves just go all the time, constantly, you know, we, we can't destroy the matter. It doesn't ever go away. It only reincorporates into something new. And so, but that's like a scarier vision, I think for some people than this idea that, you know, you're, your body is your consciousness can be like removed from your brain and uploaded to the cloud or like we'll go to heaven or something like that's like a really like egocentric individualistic point of view of like we have to live forever because like we we shouldn't be reconstituted back into this soup of life but obviously like i disagree with that i think that i think that that's like an honor and a privilege to be able to continue life after my death you know continue the life of other beings absolutely Absolutely. And it's such a nice way to describe this concept, this process that we go through. I think there's a the Buddhist, there's a Buddhist concept called life death, where it's like this one word hyphenated together. It's it's this one thing and, and it's just one more way where we're disconnected from nature where most people never really see death. We eat food that was killed elsewhere. Most people don't compost ever, you know, we just throw everything away. So there's no 
even on that micro scale of, of seeing plant life die and decompose and become soil, which is then reconstituted into other plant life, which can then be consumed. And I think this, the same thing happens with our excrement. I guess we could probably be using that in much better ways. Instead, we're just wasting it. We're not incorporating that into the life cycle of, of the soil and, and the food system. And there, there's there's so much in which we are disconnected. And, and like you mentioned, seeing the, the body of the bison, I I was imagining that would be like so gory and like bloody. And, and it was actually more like one of my favorite parts of, of being alive and enjoying art and aesthetic beauty is, is the cross section of a fruit, like a kiwi, for example, is just so mind blowing or even a cabbage, you cut that in half and you look and it's just like, whoa, or a tree, you cut that in half and you see the rings of the life that it lived. And it's just, it boggles my mind every time I love it. And it was very much like that. The bison inside has it was all this fractal beauty and it wasn't gushing blood. It wasn't gory. It wasn't like watching some horrible horror movie. It was aesthetic and beautiful. And I just was taken aback by each individual part having its its own beauty to it. And and this is all, you know, things that that we've we've lost track of at some point through through time. And and now we're, we're coming together. There, there's this growing movement to reconnecting with that and that nourishment with that that part of life and, and part of nature. And I really love everything that you've articulated and that you will be continuing to articulate around this and create around this and very much looking forward to listening to all the future episodes that you make on, on your podcast and in the, in the documentary when that comes. I'm excited about that and really appreciate the time that you spent with me here today, sharing everything that you've learned along the way and thoroughly enjoyed this jam. Is, is there any sort of last thought that you'd like to share with, with everybody listening? No, thank you for having us. We love having these conversations and this is this is great. I'm I'm super stoked to dig into your podcast now too. I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah, I think I've, I I uh, I'm just feeling good. It's just always nice to be able to talk about some of the more like ephemeral things, you know, cuz I think I, I like recently um one of our our podcast listeners and friends uh posted in our Discord about this essay that Charles Eisenstein wrote like yesterday or something. And at the end, he's like, there's three things that people need to do um, to solve, to, to like regain environmentalism and like make environmentalism real again. And, you know, one of the things, uh, t t one of the things that he wrote in it is like detoxification as one of like the main things that people should focus on. And one of the, the things that really drew me to that idea is like that there's so much psychic toxicity in the way that we, that these pathologies of epistemology and the ways that we think about the world. And so it's like ha coming to a place of like having a spiritual connectedness to our lives and why we're here and the land that we, that we're a part of and the relationships that we have with one another, I think is like a really important step in that detoxification process. So I think that's just what I would say is like that this, the, the process of regeneration and creating a, be a better world that we want to live in, it's very, it's, it's on all of the layers of being, you know, and we just are fortunate enough to be able to think about and talk about all of them. So thank you for the time. Yeah. Beautiful. Jake and Marin, thank you. Thank you, Case. Thank you, man. <laughs>